Welcome to the Combustion Chronicles podcast, where bold leaders combine with big ideas to create game-changing disruption. I'm Sean Nason, founder of Man on Fire, and your host for the Combustion Chronicles. Throughout this series, we're bringing together the most unique and influential minds we could find to have honest conversations about not being okay with the status quo, blowing shit up, and working together to influence our shared future. We believe that when bold leaders ignite consumer-centric ideas with passion and grit, the result is an explosion that creates a better world for all of us. I'm here with my co-host, Michael Harper, Chief of Radical Experiences at Mofi. So on today's episode, we're speaking with Soon Yu. Soon is an international speaker, award-winning author on innovation and design, and Forbes contributor who has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, Entrepreneur Magazine, and the New York Times. His book, Iconic Advantage, challenges businesses to refocus their innovation priorities on building greater iconicity and offers deeper insights on establishing timeless distinction and relevance. He regularly consults business leaders on developing meaningful, iconic signature elements, iconic brand language, signature moments, and signature communication. He most recently served as the Global VP of Innovation and Officer at VF Corporation, the parent organization to over 30 global apparel companies. He is a highly sought after speaker on innovation, design, and entrepreneurship, and is a teacher at Parsons School of Design. Soon, it's great to have you on. Yeah, it's great to be on with you guys. And wow, what an intro. I, I'm going to hire you for my PR firm now. <laughs> we would gladly do it. Like, there's so <laughs> much just in the bio that we can dig into. So soon, we're going to get into just a great conversation today. What draws you specifically to the innovation and design space? And what continues to excite you about your work and what inspires you in that space? Sure, sure, sure. You know, when I think about the idea of innovation, and I think you're asking sort of the why. Like why innovation? Why design? And why, why the interest in all of that? And I, I have to kind of look back at sort of first my personality and my proclivities, I guess. And I would definitely say that by nature, I am somebody who's always asking, why isn't this better? Or why isn't that better? Or would it be fun to marry that up with that. And so it's kind of a combination of two things. I would say it's been this curiosity around why can't we make something a little better than it is and never being sort of satisfied with that idea of the status quo. And then marrying that sort of curiosity with the creativity or kookiness or whatever of saying, what if I mashed up this idea was that idea. What would happen here, you know? And and sort of being kind of using the analogy of, of kind of cooking, you know? Taking different spices and different ingredients and mashing them up and seeing what you get to see if you can actually come up with something a little more tasty. And when I think of innovation and I think of design, it really takes advantage of those two things. It really, you know, those who are innovators are always asking, how might we? How might I? How might we do A, B, and C? different or better. And then I think they're really applying the skills of just bridging something they learned here or something that's working over here and saying, might that analogy kind of be applied here and seeing what happens? And so, yeah, that's kind of why I love both innovation and design. And one aspect specifically about design, it's not only design of solutions, which I absolutely think is a critical part of innovation, 
but I've always been a fan of design of aesthetics and design of sort of seamless experiences or actually not even seamless, sometimes really involved, engaging, frictionful experiences that leave me out of breath. And I think the idea of design, whether it's to, you know, visually feel aesthetic or to shock you or to, from an experiential point of view, to leave an impression or just to create a memory. I I think that's the aspect of design I really enjoy. I loved you said, leave me out of breath. So those experiences, those design elements, and that's powerful. So in today's world, you're speaking, you've written a book. What continues to inspire you day to day in this space? Yeah, in this space, I think it's really, I look at it, especially today, I think it's uh, this idea of the human struggle. And then struggles, it's the condition. I I wouldn't say it's always struggle. Sometimes it's the human triumphs and and it's the the idea of the, the human story. And I think innovation is a critical part of it. You know, if we look at something as simple as, I don't know, travel, you know, originally people, you know, got around in horse and carriages. And probably prior to that, they were trying to figure out if they could, you know, design something that could use wheels. And then, you know, after the horse and carriage, they came up with the, the Model T. And then from the Model T, you know, now we're into, you know, combustion engines that are, can go 200 miles an hour and, and, and now we have electric cars and then they're going to be self-driving. And it's like, wow, this, but then what's the impact on society of that? And I was thinking about, like to say this idea, stay on the idea of transportation. I'm from Taiwan. I grew up there. And when I was growing up, there was really three main cities. There was the Northern city, which is Taipei, the middle city, which is Taizong, and then the Southern city, which is Kaohsiung. And when I was growing up, getting back and forth, there was only one highway and it wasn't so bad when I was young. It was probably give or take two or three hours between those cities. And so to go north and south was maybe five or six hours. But then as the population grew and as more and more people were able to purchase cars and the per capita, the you know, cars per capita just you know, went, out, went over one, right? That commute, especially during the holidays when people wanted to go visit their families, like during, let's say, Chinese New Year's, Believe it or not, the average commute between the northern city of Taipei and the southern city of Kaohsiung could take easily over 18 hours, which normally should be like four and a half to five hours, 18 hours. And people would do it. And they would. And that was the only way you could go see your family during Chinese New Year's. And then when they actually put in the high speed rail, life changed dramatically because you could go from north the South in literally two hours flat. And they showed this one picture. It's very Chinese, okay? They said before the high-speed rail, they showed a picture of the outside of somebody's house, you know, the simple, you know, welcome doormat, of course, is in Chinese characters, right? And they showed maybe two or three pairs of shoes. Because if you know Chinese culture, everyone takes off their shoes before they go inside. Then they showed a after the high-speed rail. And they were literally like two dozen pairs of shoes in the front of the house. And that said it all. It said that's what innovation can do. That's what, you know, innovation do in terms of changing people's lives. It could bring families together. It can bring more families together. And I just thought that was such a powerful statement of what innovation 
can do to people's lives, bring them together. Wow. I was actually visualizing that as you were talking about it. That's, that's powerful. You know, recently, soon you said it's not the biggest, fastest, or baddest mousetrap that gets the mice. It's the one with the stinkiest cheese. And first off, I absolutely love that. And it's not just because I love cheese, but I do. (laughs) I love cheese too. (laughs) It's because I do love cheese soon, all types. So, but can you explain to our listeners what you mean by the stinkiest cheese? Sure. So um, before I do that, I just wanted to tell you, go to Whole Foods. They have this truffle cheese. It is to die for, Sean. To die for. Oh, I'm going as soon as I can. I tell you, it's so stinky and so yummy at the same time. I can't get enough of it. Sorry, I know that's a tangent. Okay, so <laughs> I love that soapbox. <laughs> so keep <laughs> back to this idea about stinky cheese. I work with a lot of companies and especially a lot of startups. And this really applies to startups, but it also applies to big companies, of course. But let's take it from the mindset of a startup. Usually, startups. They get involved in a new idea, but they're not the only horse in town or the only uh, mousetrap in town, I guess, right? And they're usually in the philosophy, well, if I'm the first out, then I'm probably going to be successful. Or if I'm the biggest, then I'm probably going to be most successful. Or if I have the best bells and whistles slash technology slash IP, then I'm going to be really successful. And I I think history is littered with companies that were the first out, that quite frankly, the second one kicked their butt, okay? (laughs) And there are people that were really big, but the nimble ones came in and actually out-innovated them uh, through business model innovation. And so anyway, that doesn't always actually work and it doesn't stick very well. So my whole point there is, it isn't always the one with the best technology or the one that has the most scale or the one that got there first. It's the one that can tell the best story. Because if you can tell the best story of what you're doing and make whatever you're doing seem that much more relevant to the end consumer and customer end user, then whatever you're doing is 10x, 100x in terms of the value because you've created a story. And that's what stinkiness is about. Great storytelling, okay? Around your cheese. To me, that's what stinky cheese is, is having a great story that creates meaning. Let me give you an example of the power of meaning. Humans are such a unique species. We're probably the only species on the entire universe that can create something out of nothing. We can create meaning out of nothing. So my example is this. You don't, you don't see this right now, but help, uh, I'll help you visualize another thing. Right now on my desk, I have a Mont Blanc pen that I got as a gift when I left one of the companies I worked with. Beautiful, Worth a lot of money, traditional, you know, uh, white sort of star at the very tip, all that. And you can visualize that. But I also have this ratty, tatty, big pen that's all chewed up and scratched. And if I asked you, which of these two pens are more meaningful? Well, most people are probably going to say Mont Blanc. Which one's more iconic? They're probably going to say the Mont Blanc. But if I told you the story behind the big pen, if I told you it is exactly 14 years old, that I only use it once a year. And my wife only uses it once a year to write anniversary cards to each other because it is the pen that the Justice of Peace gave us to sign our marriage certificate because I forgot to bring a pen that day. Now, if I asked you, which of these two are more meaningful, what would you say? 
Obviously, a big pen. Pause for a second here, Sean. I just made up that entire story. It's not even true. Okay? <laughs> that's how we make something out of nothing. That's right. And that's what Stinky Cheese is. And if you can figure out a way to tell a better story about whatever you're doing and tell it in a much more stinky way versus saying, oh, I've got the biggest platform, I've got the fastest platform, I've got the whatever, right? You will win. Because people will remember that and they'll attach meaning behind it and they will pay for that meaning. Wow. First off, you know, I'm going to get you when I see you sometime. Like I was starting to get all emotional and <laughs> fuzzy inside and imagining. And then I found out that it wasn't even real soon. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, I pulled your leg. But you that's know what? Right. You're going you're gonna to get some stinky cheese out of all of this. Oh, right? that's right. So let's touch on this concept of Iconic Advantage, which is also the title of your book. So listeners, if you haven't got it, go get it. Walk us through this whole concept of Iconic Advantage. Sure. Now, I know you gave me this great intro, but let me just qualify. I think for every success I've had, I've had at least two failures. So in other words, my as long as my intro was, my failure intro would have been at least two to three times long, right? And I've literally had many, many major failures in my life to the point where I got a credit score of 300, which is the lowest you can get, by the way. And I'd actually done it twice in my life. Okay, so I've, I've had bankruptcies. I've had to lay off people. Anyway, the whole kit and caboodle, okay? And so there was always this burning curiosity. Why have other people been able to commercialize innovation and new ideas better than I have been able to. And so I kind of just decided to do some research and I looked at 50 companies that were doing innovation and design differently. And it was these companies that were creating timeless distinction and relevance. Timeless brands that through this idea of being long, uh, having longevity and owning something that's distinctively relevant, they have become standard bearers for that distinctive relevance and thereby becoming iconic. And I'm like, wow, was that by accident? Or was that by intent and design? And it is the latter. It is by intent and design. So then the question is, okay, how do we reverse engineer that, pull it apart, share it with others so that they can replicate it? And that is the whole analysis and case study and premise behind Iconic Advantage is reverse engineering. How do you create a timeless brand that is meaningful to people? When I looked at these 50 brands that were doing it great, like the BMWs of the world, the Burberries of the world, the Amazons of the world, all these brands that have really managed to create this idea of iconicity, there are three things that they did very well and that they all share in terms of qualities. One was one, having something that made them stand apart from the competition, something distinctive. That was number one. Number two, whatever that distinction was, it wasn't just different for different sake. It was highly relevant distinction. Okay. And importantly, it wasn't just relevant distinction, but it was relevant yesterday. It was relevant today. And it was going to be relevant five or 10 years from now. It's this idea of creating timeless relevance against that distinction. And then the last quality they had beyond having distinction and timeless relevance was universal recognition for the audience they wanted to be iconic to. And so if you could have those three things, having universal recognition for that distinctive relevance over time, you would become iconic. So then what the book really looks at is how do you create distinction 
timeless relevance, and then get recognition from that. And one of the key takeaways there was that most of these brands created signatures, signatures that were embodied through signature elements. I'll give you a couple examples here. So when you think about going on vacation and having the beer that represents vacation beer, the beer that probably comes to mind is Corona. And their key signature element is having a line in the neck. They talk about Coronas being naked until they are dressed with their limes. And every time you see that lime, you could be dead of winter in Toronto at a rooftop, you know, a soiree, and you see that lime in the neck and it brings you to the beach. It brings you to the last vacation you were at. That is a signature element that they continually press, continually storytell around, and continually innovate against. So that is a signature element. Google. What they were best known for, truthfully, was the barren web interface with the one feature that they did well and did well better than anyone else, and that was search. And if you remember when Google launched, there was the Excites of the world, the Lycos of the world, the Ask Jeeves, all those other so-called search engines. And when you went on their uh, homepage, it was littered with hyperlinks. And so Google not only played on this idea of the box, they played on their little name, and they have owned search because they continually to not only own the signature, but innovate around the meaning, the benefits around the idea that that signature delivers, which is search. So those are just some examples of great signature elements that really embody your distinctive relevance. And the key is innovate against those always have a huge innovation pipeline around your signature element. In terms of the refocusing the priorities, what advice do you give people? Because innovation's hard, right? There's lots of things that get in the way of innovation. There's lots of walls that cause us to, to slow down or stop. But I love the language of refocusing innovation priorities because in my mind, I didn't even know there were priorities in innovation. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really important is one of the benefits of having people who are innovative is that they're truth seekers. They're really trying to figure out what's true, what's the new truths, right? Versus, I call, I think the, uh, Roger Martin, who is a friend and mentor of mine, and he was a former dean of the Rotman School and I think probably the world's best strategist. He talks about there's two types of people. There's validity people and then there's reliability people. And 90% of the corporate organizations are filled with reliability people. These are people that they know what works and what their goal is, is to make it work even better. Okay. They focus on reliable outcomes. Okay. Whereas you and I and Michael, we're, we're, we're validity people. We're out there trying to find new truths and trying to validate whether or not there are new truths or whether or not it's true. Okay. And the problem with validity people is we're oftentimes faced with the reliability people asking us the question, prove it, <laughs> you know, prove it. And, and you can't prove it because you don't know what the answer is. You need to actually go and find out if there's truth there. And so that's what the, the conundrum is, is literally people sometimes have a hard time being successful in reliability organizations because we're always being asked to prove it. So understanding that that is the dynamic and needing innovation to be successful my suggestion is this. What I found and why these people and why those 50 companies I researched were so successful is 
they kind of reframed the exercise to focus around what people already know to be reliable. And instead of innovating things that are shiny new objects or brand new to the world, instead of innovating that new, they actually innovated the old, okay? They took all their great ideas, but where they innovated was different. It's not what they innovated on. They added AI, they added virtual reality, they added uh, you know, new experiences, they added new materials, whatever it is, okay? But it's the where that was really more. They innovated against something already proven, against their signature elements, their iconic franchises. And when they did that, two things happened. One, if you say to the CFO, hey, you know, we've been selling the Nike Air for 30 years and it's our most profitable brand and we're making XYZ margins and I want to invest more money against growing that, your CFO is going to go, hell yeah. But if you say, oh, I'm going to create this new line, I'm going to get a new brand, and I'm going to you know, go after this new segment of people we don't even know about and create this new distribution house, he's going to be like, I don't know if that's really what I want to invest against, right? But take all your crazy ideas, but apply it against the Nike Air, make that air, the air pocket, and the idea of buoyancy and, and what it represents, and focus all your energy around making that thing even more successful. You see, at Nike, the biggest supporters of this idea of iconic advantage or innovating the old aren't the merchandisers, aren't the product people. It is actually, believe it or not, the supply chain guys and the CFOs. Because they realize when you're innovating against something that's already proven, it's a lot more successful. The probability of success is so much higher. You already have a built-in consumer base that loves you. You already have a built-in retail channel that's willing to take any new crazy idea you have against that. You already have built-in loyalty. You already have a supply chain that has all the die-cast molds that are required to make whatever it is you're going to do. And all you're doing is actually growing the volume, so you're actually improving the cost. So that's what innovating the old helps you do is you take all the crazy ideas, but where you apply it, you apply it where you've already been successful. So what about this approach to branding and to innovation? What about how it affects personal brand? You know, I think about young adults trying to, to get out there and they've got so many amazing ideas, trying to do something for the world. The world needs them. I need them. And they've got to cut through all the, the clutter, right? And never before has personal brand been so important, not just LinkedIn, but having an Instagram presence, having who you are and getting out there. How, how might this factor into just a person's brand? Oh, that's a really deep question, but I'm going to give you as simple of an answer as I can against this. I do believe the same principles around branding a company, branding a product line, branding a service, apply 100% to branding yourself. You can use the same tools. I use a very simple brand pyramid for uh, companies I work with. And I've applied the same thing for my son, for a friend's daughter, as they were thinking about you know, how to position themselves to get into a better high school or a better middle school. Yes, believe it or not. And as they think about how they package themselves for college. So the answer is all the tools apply. Now, here's where I think it's important to think about. As a person, what's your signature? Is there something that you're best known for? doesn't mean you can't be multifaceted. It doesn't mean you're not multidimensional. 
But is there one or two things that you're totally known for? And it's your key point of difference. And it's something, when I think of point of difference is one, it's something that you have strength in, something you have skill in. That's attached to this idea of strength and skills. It's something you actually like to do, okay? It's not something you don't like to do. So it's something you're strong in that you like to do. That's the, think of the Venn intersection of three things. That's number one. Number two is it's something that other people appreciate you for. Doesn't mean everybody, but there's a segment in the population. Maybe it's a niche is all it is required. But people really appreciate you for that strength that you like to demonstrate. And the third is, it makes you a little bit different than other people. If you can find that intersection of those three, that's a wonderful point of difference to create a signature around. And so as I tell brands that I work with and, and businesses I work with, what's your signature? I ask the same thing of people. What's your signature? What's something that you love to do that you're known for that you could do 24 hours a day and no one paid you, you'd still be doing it, that you can double down, triple down on that makes it something that people appreciate and also just gives you something to talk about that just, it might be 20 other people are doing it because you're so nerdy about it. You do, you have a different take on it or you just have a more depth on it. So in that sense, I think having your own personal signature is important. I have one caveat on this though. For younger people, I think it's okay to have a signature, but it's okay if that signature changes over time because, hey, you're a growing, dynamic prototype and you're going to be trying new things and they're not always going to work. And what you thought you might like now, five or 10 years from now, you may not. That is okay. So as a young person, if your signature is vacillating change, that's great, actually. I think it's great to, to go through life trying to find it. But by the time you hit your 30s, you should probably have one or two things that you're best known for that you're doubling and tripling down on. Things you like, not things you don't like. Some people, I think, fall in the trap of being good at something that they don't actually enjoy. That is the worst trap in the world. Wow, that's some great stuff. So I'm going to ask you one more question that really will put you on the spot, and then we're going to get into our combustion questions here. But looking at the landscape across all industries today soon, what is one company that you would love to get your hands on and work in this space around this iconic advantage? What, like, is there one that you just go, gosh, I wish I could have that? <laughs> yeah, there have been a couple that have sort of come to mind. You know, one that's sort of close to home, just because I've, I've had the, I guess, pleasure or whatever of or honor of being able to, to meet the founder of Zoom. And I actually think, you know, Zoom right now, obviously, is riding high because of the current situation. But I'll be honest with you, I don't know with the competition coming in and a lot of people coming in, building better, bigger, faster mousetraps, whether or not they've created the stinkiest cheese. And so that for me, that would be like the easiest win is to help them right now and say, look, guys, how do we make your, what is your signature beyond having the most availability? Okay, because that means you have the kind of the biggest mousetrap, right? How do we create some real stinky cheese for you that really is lasting? How do we create language that is yours only, that this becomes something that you've created, that you own, that becomes part of the vernacular of, of describing the routines or the new behaviors that people are adopting because that makes you even stickier? And how do you own that? So I think that would be like kind of a no-brainer. There are other companies that are probably less obvious and I have to think about that, but that's one I've thought about a couple of times because 
a lot of people say, oh yeah, Zoom's going to be the de facto. Of course, I don't know. I'll be honest. Uh, Microsoft's coming up some great stuff. You know, uh, Cisco is too. There's a whole bunch of people. Web, there's just a ton of people that are going to be jumping into the space that, quite frankly, could build better mouse traps. But it's not about mouse traps. It's about stinky cheese. Love it, love it. So we've come to that point in the episode soon where we've used this amazing algorithm. Um, that's personally built in Michael's head. Oh. Yeah, I'm telling you, it's powerful. Um, <laughs> and the combustion questions. So he's going to ask you three questions and um, have a little bit of fun with it. So, Michael, take it over. Okay, soon. Are you ready for your combustion questions? Yeah, this is spontaneous combustion about to happen. Bam. Here we go. Number one, if you could create a new sport, what would it be? I think it would be a sport that could be used in the let's all yeah the Zoom chat rooms and so somehow while you're having a meeting while you're uh, yeah while you're having a webinar or whatever it is on Zoom in the background there could be a game that is happening that points are being counted that you could win something for that actually keeps the audience engaged and if you're really creative that ties to the topic or the purpose or the meeting objective at hand i think that would be fun and then within a few months it would be commercialized and we could get sponsorships for it right well, yeah, Michael, I would say you have the IP for it. You just trademark it, and you would get a Bitcoin for every time it's used. You would really. I'm telling you, <laughs> we heard that first here on the Combustion Chronicles. We're, we're claiming that trademark and IP, and soon we'll come into a joint venture over this. Yeah, we'll call it, uh, not instead of Zoom, it's Goom. You know, it's a game. I don't know. <laughs> All right, soon. Here's uh, question number two. What's the favorite piece of clothing that you've ever owned, ever? Oh, gosh. Ever, Even ever. Even childhood. Favorite piece of clothing you've ever had. Okay. The one that's probably bringing us the best memory, we started a dive team my senior year, a diving team, right? And quite frankly, we all sucked. We, none of us had grew up diving. You know, we were seniors in, in college. I wanted the letter in something. I was not big enough to be a football player or, or tall enough to be a basketball player or just athletic enough to do anything else. And then there was this, hey, opportunity to get a letter by being on the diving team. I'm like, okay, sign me up. And there's a bunch of us that signed up. And we never dove in our whole life. And because we weren't in the culture of diving and swimming, Wearing Speedos was just, is very, very self-conscious, let's just say, okay. You know, and our diving team had an incredible coach that actually got us from zero to 60 pretty quickly. And so that we ended up at the end of the year being third in the sectionals of uh, 12 high schools that competed. That's pretty impressive going from nothing to being third, okay? But our key signature was Bermuda shorts. We dove in Bermuda shorts. And it was a shock to the judges because, one, they're saying, you know, how can you actually be nimble and flexible in Bermuda shorts? And it was just so different that it became our signature. And I still have that those pair of Bermuda shorts that I wore, that I, I, I actually meddled in. And yeah, they're very faded and I can't fit in them anymore. But th- that is probably my favorite piece of clothing I have. We will look forward to digging out some pictures. Yes. (laughs) 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 Number three, what do you think about throw pillows? 
I love throw pillows. I don't think you could ever have enough. You know, one, you can throw them at people, right? Two, you know, I have a bad back. And so for me, it's such a great support system when I'm sitting in a chair that's just too soft. And three, you know, they come in different sizes, shapes, and colors, and so much variety. What's not love to love about a throw pillow? Not much. Love it. <laughs> love it. Well, Sun, thank you for sharing with us today in this great conversation. So excited that you were with us and on this episode. And uh, we look forward to catching up and talking again. So thanks, Sun. Thanks, guys. Keep pushing the gospel with people like you guys sort of getting the word out and being such great proponents. You know, it just makes all of the rest of us that much more inspired. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Combustion Chronicles. None of this would be possible without you, the listener. If you'd like to keep the conversation going, look us up at Man on Fire Social on Instagram and Facebook, or find us on YouTube at the Combustion Chronicles. Give us a shout and join our disruption movement. And check out this episode's downloadable recap page at manonfire.co. We know you lead a busy life, so if you're driving, exercising, or maybe you're just blowing your own shit up, don't worry. We've already taken the notes for you. Each recap is filled with guest information, episode themes, quotes, resources, and more. And remember, please subscribe, rate, and review if you like what we are doing. And if you don't, do it anyways. Stay safe and be well.